When you feel stretched to breaking point, do you ever still feel guilty about taking time to put your own needs first? And do you sometimes struggle even to know what these needs are? And why as professionals do we find it so hard to care for ourselves in the way that we try to care for others? In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Katja Miles. She's a GP and she's an occupational health physician turned well-being trainer. She founded Working Well Doctor and she's also a Shapes Toolkit trainer. We talk about Katja's own experience of burnout and how our innate perfectionism can sometimes lead us into overwork and over-worry. We discuss how difficult we can find it to give ourselves permission to care for ourselves, even if we know we really need to. So listen, if you want to find out how to pause long enough to figure out what you really need, and there's a link to a free download of the Stress Curve Worksheet in the show notes that will help you to do this. Listen, if you want to find out how to stop trying to pour from an empty cup, and listen, if you want to give yourself permission to thrive, even at work. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog. Life hacks for doctors and other busy professionals who want to beat burnout and work happier. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris. I'm a GP turned coach, speaker and specialist in teaching resilience. And I'm interested in how we can wake up and be excited about going to work no matter what. I've had 20 years of experience working in the NHS and I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed, worried about making a mistake and one crisis away from not coping. Even before the coronavirus crisis, we were facing unprecedented levels of burnout. We have been described as frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, working harder and longer, and the heat has been turned up so slowly that we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm and have got used to the low-grade feelings of stress and exhaustion. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two options, stay in the pan and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog. And that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your destiny and to craft your work and life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. And if you're happier at work, you will simply do a better job. In this podcast, I'll be inviting you inside the minds of friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control and thrive, not just survive, in our work and our lives and love what we do again. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. It's great to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Katja Miles. Now, Katja's a GP and she's founder of The Working Well Doctor. She's also an occupational health physician and a wellbeing trainer. So welcome, Katja. Thank you very much indeed. So it's really good to speak to you today. And I'd like to kick off by asking you, how did you, how did you get into all of that? 
having started presumably as a GP. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I think I had a background interest in holistic medicine, the whole person, you know, that's what general practice is about, uh, I think. Um, So I knew a bit about that anyway. And then I started to do some work in occupational health because I was a civilian medical practitioner for the armed forces. So that got me interested in occupational health. Um, But along in parallel with that, I was having my own personal struggles I'd had anxiety and it took me a long time to realize that was what it was I for a long time I was just telling myself it was normal work normal stress um and that took me quite a while and ended up um burning out and between those two experiences the personal experience um of not really noticing my own well-being and then coming through that which was quite the journey um along with the background of occupational health which does just kind of get you thinking about work and health um, and performance and all those things. And then obviously GP, where you've got a fair bit of knowledge and background expertise. Um, They all kind of dovetailed together. And I've also loved teaching for my whole life. I used to teach children dance. I taught special, I was a special needs assistant before med school and taught all the way through med school. So I've always loved teaching and training and doing workshops and all that stuff. Um, I've had had some really good feedback about the stuff I did uh, before founding the Working Well Doctor. And so it just all seemed to dovetail together. Mm. So a bit of a journey. Um, It's interesting that you say that you had anxiety for for a long time. Do you think that started as a child or just when you qualified? (laughs) <laughs> good question um I think some of it was there before med school definitely but I don't think uh medical training was the most helpful fit for somebody who had a tendency for perfectionism and um yeah I think I think it was really fascinating but one of the things I think that's challenging about medical training and I actually talk about in my training is often Medical training rewards perfectionism in as much as it's possible in theory to get 100% in an exam. So you can strive for that and get a pat on the back or a certificate. And then when you pop out and you actually qualify as a doctor, it's almost impossible to get 100% in clinical practice or indeed real life. Um, so that was a bit of a, a, for me, that was a struggle. And I know it, it is a struggle for, for some other types of doctors. Uh, and I think there's that piece as well about how we identify with our work, which again is amazing, of course, and it's a vocation. So there's something within it about identity. Um, but I think if you over-identify, and I think I did over-identify, then it becomes such a high stakes game. It feels high risk for you to even contemplate anything that might challenge your ability to work as a doctor. And that makes it much harder to notice or acknowledge things are going, uh, you're struggling because there's a big threat there, the threat of I might not be able to do this. And what will happen to me if I'm so closely bound up in my identity with being a doctor? Um, So I think those are a couple of the barriers, uh, along with other barriers, but (laughs) a couple of them that meant I... Uh, kind of became more anxious through my work as a, a doctor. Uh, I think that was the question you asked. I can't remember mm. that. You know, it's all about it. when did the anxiety start? I think it's interesting your reflections about perfectionism. I don't know many doctors. I don't know any lawyers or accountants who aren't perfectionists, actually. You yeah. know, really high standard because we are told through our training that that's what you've, you've got to meet. And we've got told that if you get this wrong, you know, there's going to be big consequences. And the problem yeah. is... That's reality. I know. Is that actually if you do get something wrong, there may well be quite yes. big consequences. And as a result, we are absolutely terrified of making mistakes. Well, not not firstly, not 
being up to scratch, not being 100% perfect, but then making a catastrophic error. I was uh, doing a, a keynote talk at a conference last year for a lot of um, physician mums, actually. And I had a little, did a little survey at the end about what's the one thing that keeps you awake at night. And I would say 95% of the people that returned that survey said it's, it's making a mistake or worrying that I've done something wrong. Yeah. And it is difficult, isn't it? I think there's that exactly that, that, uh, that check-in with yourself going, what's the worst that could happen? And obviously in general practice with so much uncertainty, that's part of what they suggest you do when you're making your diagnosis. What's the worst going to happen? Let's manage for that safety net and so on. And that's obviously, as you said, needed, but it can be quite difficult mentally or maybe not mentally, but emotionally for certain types. And I think um, boundaries help. And I'm not great with boundaries. So if you're able to bound like, you know, it's almost the inverse of that over identifying with your work. But if you don't over identify with your work, if you're discreet in your life and your work and able to set good boundaries within work, between home and work. And I think that allows some, uh, it makes it a bit easier to contemplate yeah, these things that keep people up at night, you know, how could how could I manage if, God forbid, something went wrong? As well as your worries for the actual patient, there's the kind of impact on yourself and your self-esteem and all those downstream consequences. And I think that's it's very common, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it's not just in medicine, like you're saying, it's other high stakes professions, other safety critical professions. Yeah. And they don't teach you about this in med school. They don't teach you about how to <laughs> overcome perfectionism and how good enough is probably okay. And how, I mean, there are some things that, yeah, absolutely, you've got to get 100% right. But there are most other things. There isn't actually an answer. There isn't a right or wrong answer. You know, medicine, as much as an art as it is a science, and sometimes with the best will in the world, everybody would get it wrong because you don't know what to, you know, nobody knows what the right thing is to do. Yet we, beat ourselves up and we don't we don't give ourselves permission mm. that it is okay and that no one's going to judge us but more than that I think we need to give ourselves permission that we need to be getting things wrong and making mistakes because how on earth are you ever going to learn unless you put it out there and make mistakes it's funny isn't it because that's the real growth mindset thing Carol Dweck talks about all of yeah. that so of course for your resilience as a human uh, and also for your professional development, you need to be learning. And that's a great way we all learn. And you need to have that kind of, like you said, this mental attitude that embraces learning and it's okay to make mistakes. But then it's it's difficult to juggle. I think you're right. There is a, there is a way you can manage it because you can just say, okay, these things are high risk, really, really good if I don't make a mistake in this area. But there are other bits that aren't always so high pressure or high risk. I put up a picture of a leaf when I do my wellbeing training. It's a really beautiful fern with one tiny frond missing. And just say, look, this is an excellent leaf, but it is not a perfect leaf. You know, and just thinking about striving for excellence versus striving for perfection um, uh, is a maybe more helpful, helpful approach. Yeah, I think it's weird. I was just thinking that like, I would never learn to ski without thinking I was going to fall over or, you know, play the piano. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it wrong. But, but we do expect ourselves to get it right. We've set really high standards for ourselves. Is, is that why you ended up burning out? Do you think? I think it's partly definitely. Yes. Uh, and although I love general practice, it's, there's a lot more uncertainty in general practice because mm. there's so many possible differentials. Whereas by the time you get into acute medicine, it, the problem is not what's the diagnosis that we know that person's having a heart attack. It's what, how do we treat it? That's a whole different approach. Whereas in general practice, there's a lot more uncertainty. And I think you've got to learn how to manage that. And I think the interesting thing is I think you learn by doing. And one thing I was reflecting is that we're all better at managing uncertainty this time this year compared to this time last year, whatever our job, because we've had to. We've lived with so much uncertainty in the pandemic that we just wouldn't have 
experienced before. Um, so there is a, a part of learning by doing, but I think there's also a part where you have to be self-aware. How am I doing? How is this affecting me? Mm. And I think at the time when I was not doing so well, I wasn't as self-aware as I am now. And I did struggle to give myself permission to even notice how I was feeling or name it honestly. Um, instead of saying, oh, it's just a bit of stress, go, actually, no, this is real. This is, this is, this is a, a, a big deal for me. Mm. And how am I going to uh, work through this? I think that's a really important point because I think many professionals in high stress jobs just think that stress is normal mm. and these symptoms are normal. I was talking to a, a physio and she said that she'd had somebody who'd come in uh, as a runner with a running injury and they'd sat down and gone, oh, I've got this really dreadful knee injury, but I guess I should just expect it. I'm a runner. We all get injured, don't we? And she was like, She's like, no, it's not normal to be injured. It's not normal. Yet whenever I do my sort of resilience training with, with doctors and other people, it's like, oh, we're stressed, but you know, everyone's stressed, aren't they? It's just normal. That's what we have to be. If we are a doctor, we will be stressed. We'll be perhaps on the edge of burnout and we'll probably not be enjoying things. We'll just be trying to survive and get through. And I'm thinking, hang on a sec. That is not, it's not a normal physiological state to be stressed and anxious I nearly burnt out. But in our minds, I think possibly because, you know, we've done 120 hours a week as junior doctors and we know what that was like and you just had to sort of suck it up and do it. We think then that's normal to carry on. So we are really then bad at spotting in ourselves if we do have something that is really affecting us that needs some help. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I was thinking when you're saying about junior doctors, I think that's really true. You get habituated into really basic poor self-care like you literally won't eat you won't nip to the bathroom because of the needs of the others and sometimes that's fair enough if your crash bleep blows off but your crash bleep doesn't literally go off all day every day but nonetheless you get into the habit of just deferring your needs um and i think that's that's and then those that then spills over into the mindset you're just describing when you're like you're no longer a junior doctor but you're still having a similar approach to saying it's normal to defer my needs it's normal to be tolerating some some level of stress and I think you're right I I think that point about um not noticing and saying it's just normal is kind of a mask isn't it and it allows us to not look beneath what's happening and I, de I definitely did that um and when I t t do some training I talk about you know the old good old Yerkes Dodson curve you know your stress versus performance and we all I'm just drawing a little bit of a cross for those on the podcast you know at the top peak it's okay and we can tolerate short-term stress in it and it, it, we get good performance and that's fine you know if a cat runs in front of the car we'll slam on the brakes and that's good for the cat, good for us, and we can tolerate that short-term stress, like you were saying. But when it becomes chronic, then it's much more damaging, like you pointed out. And I think there is something there about noticing red flags in yourself. So there might not be the traditional red flags you might learn at medical school or postgrad. But for you, what are your red flags that show you're under strain versus being in that sort of stretch part of the curve? But you're going down, your performance is dipping, you're kind of getting towards the lower part of the curve where you might be heading to burnout. And I was rubbish at that. I was terrible. Looking back at it, I was like, I can't remember exactly when, but during but when I was heading into burnout and in burnout, I managed to crack my own tooth. I went to the dentist, had all the treatment. They're like, oh, you've cracked your tooth. I was like, oh, really? And did all the, got the treatment for the tooth. It's, you know, the dentist was perfectly competent and it's not rocket science intellectually. And that was it. I didn't reflect any further. Why am I grinding my teeth so hard at night that I've cracked my own tooth? You know, um, but it is kind of, it's not always that difficult, but you just need to stop and pause give yourself permission and reflect uh, and start to listen, I think, to yourself. And also, if you listen to people around you, they might give you an occasional clue. <laughs>
um, whether it's at work or at home. Um, but yeah, you've got to give yourself that permission. If you don't do that, then you can really remain quite blinkered. Yeah. Were there any other early warning signs that you probably ignored for too long? Oh, golly. Um, I think I ate a fair bit of chocolate. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think a bit, a bit of that. Um, and I think other things, I think we all do it when we're stressed, when we just, I've heard you say this before, actually, when you just park the stuff, you know, that's good for you. I just don't have time for it. So yeah. I'm not going to exercise, go to bed early, whatever it is. Um, and I think that is quite a red flag because it just, what it tells you is you're feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, and your response to that overwhelm is, in my case, it was poor prioritization instead of going, okay, now I need to take stock and put in place the key things that I know will help me. Uh, you kind of do the inverse of that. <laughs> you do. It's weird, isn't it? We, why is it? And I, I noticed this myself the other night. I, I had a really stressful conversation with somebody and I was just like, oh, and instead of just going to bed, I thought, no, I'm just going to stay up and watch something rubbish on telly because I need to. And I was then really knackered the next day. And I, yeah. I think I headed straight to the cupboard and got myself a large thing of chocolate, even though I wasn't supposed to be eating any carbs at that point, which didn't really help. Yes. So we, why is it? Right. This is a philosophical question. Probably. I'm not sure you can answer this, Katya. <laughs> why is it? That the stuff we use to self-soothe is never very, very um, helpful for us. Choc I'm thinking chocolate. I'm thinking alcohol. I'm yeah. thinking binging on Netflix. Um, I'm thinking caffeine, other drugs of addiction, all that stuff. Why? Why? I don't know, but they have, there's something in common about them. And there's other, you could even call, I mean, that's the other thing. Maybe work itself is, an, is a numbing. I think there's something yeah. about them where they numb or they mask or they... They give you a temporary little squirt of dopamine in your brain. I'm just talking about me and chocolate now. <laughs> you know, a temporary something, some um, uh, some positive, but it's always a short term, isn't it? It's a short term positive. Uh, and then there's the long term consequence. And even if the one bit of chocolate is not the end of the world, it, partly it's the chronicity of your chocolate consumption. <laughs> But also it's the, the other damage it does is that you're not looking, you're not looking at what sits beneath it. And it's yeah. that whole piece about sitting in your discomfort, doing that mindful thing where you just sit with and you acknowledge it's not nice, but you actually just sit with it instead of trying to ignore it or squash it with anything. The chocolate, the alcohol, even overwork is in itself another distraction, just like Netflix. So I think it gets really back to being mindfully aware why am I doing this? It's okay to eat the chocolate. It's okay to work. It's okay to watch Netflix, but why? Mm. And if the why is perfectly acceptable, healthy why, fair enough. Or you can sometimes just go, I know this is unhealthy, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> You're like, well, at least I'm consciously incompetent or whatever that phrase yeah, yeah. is. It's, it's my, no, it's my known, it's my known knowns. Yeah. Exactly. I know why I'm doing this. I know that actually, and one of the reasons I do a lot of this stuff is just to switch my thinking off because it's just going too, too crazy. Actually, I know that if I say went for a run or had a bath or got into a, got an inflatable hot tub for lockdown, it's, it's honestly so good. I know it's <laughs> a bit like, it's, a, it's not exactly very stylish, is it? But you know, kids love it. If I go and get in there, it's a really lovely sensation and it soothes. And that's much better for me than, you know, doing something else that's going to try and switch off my thinking. So it's maybe just knowing, sometimes actually not knowing what you need. Yes, that's something I think it's important, isn't it? And something I try and I often mention in the teaching. It's about pausing 
and thinking, right now, what do I need now? I did a mindfulness course, the Yorkshire Mindfulness Centre, and that was something I learned there. It's like, what do I need right now? And it doesn't take long. And so often the answer is something for right now. It's often really simple. I just need a glass of water. I just need to walk around because I've been sitting down all morning. Yeah. Um, and you can do that. If you can do that one thing for yourself, that first of all helps you for that immediate need, but also it's giving yourself that nourishment emotionally. Say, okay, I listened to myself and I've delivered for myself what I actually needed. And that kind of starts to open up this habit within or neural pathway, you might want to say, where you walk this path and you build your neurons, which allow you to think and and permit yourself to do that healthy thing. Um, And I think that's one reason why stuff like accountability partners help, you know, because if you're not in that habit, having some form of accountability, whether it's a partner or, or your own self, putting a note in the diary to check in, is helps you move through and sort of embed these habits. I tell you, but I knew I knew I was doing your podcast, and I'd listened to. I knew I was doing it today, and I was like, "Oh, what should I do to prepare?" And I'd listened just recently to your podcast on exercise, which was really good. And I was like, "I've got to go for a run. I'm going to be speaking to Rachel later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be checking up on you, Catherine. Exactly. And I was just like, "It's absolutely tipping down. It's really absolutely freezing and muddy, but I'm just going for a run." And it was really good. So you were my unconscious accountability buddy because now I feel better because I went for a run despite the fact it was freezing and wet but it's really interesting isn't it I might not have done that I might have done another behavior prior to this podcast to unwind or take a break so there is something I think about working out what your motivations are and using them to leverage good behaviors so I've started to have some accountability buddies and that for me really helps Mm. so it's an actual human being who I check in with and sort of you check in with how you're doing on your goals whatever you you set I get it. You'll push for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to you are not a slash quiz yeah I think accountability is is really good because it's not only someone checking in with you but it's it's someone affirming that those things are important yes that's right so I guess you wouldn't necessarily have an accountability buddy for how much chocolate I've eaten <laughs> might do but yeah you like you like you're right it's like you're choosing and articulating together what a good a good choice is rather than it being a, a maybe one that you wouldn't want to be sharing out loud with all your uh I don't know you can you can tell people you've eaten chocolate and watch Netflix but I you wouldn't necessarily want uh, somebody to be helping oh you well to know like like on a podcast or something <laughs> As if. <laughs> as, if, as, as if we'd like bear our souls on a podcast and tell thousands of people what we've been eating or thinking or doing. Oops. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got some uh, really lovely chocolates delivered to me actually um, by because uh, I'm a deputy editor for Medic Footprints and the, the team there sent some chocolates, which was really lovely. So I have been eating some chocolates because they were sent through yesterday. <laughs> Well, we want to know exactly how many you've eaten every day, catch you for the next month. I will send, you a, I'll send you a text update. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> Let's go back because you've mentioned this word quite a few times, permission. 
And I think there's, you know, why aren't we looking after ourselves? Why aren't we noticing when we're out, when we're anxious and getting towards the edge of that stress curve? And and by the way, what I will do for people that are listening, I've got some um, downloads of the Yerkes Dodson stress curve, so you can rate yourself, which could be helpful. So I'll put, I'll put the link in the downloads. Um, but why is it that we find it difficult to spot when we're anxious? And then even if we know what we need to do, why do we find it difficult for ourselves? to give ourselves permission to do that thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's lots of parts to that. And my personal reflections, and they're just my personal reflections, but I think uh, is that stigma is a big part of that. And I think for doctors in particular, there's something about, or carers in particular, whether you're uh, caring in your day job or caring in your home and personal life, there's something about caring for the other. And that's, you kind of, you identify with that. You're like, my job is to care for the other. And, and often you, it's very rewarding. We know that giving gives you purpose and there's lots of benefits. And of course, there's actual benefits to the person you give to. So that's all amazing. And especially if, you, if you're a healthcare professional, you get paid for it, you get a pat on the back, you know, you get letters after your name, all that good stuff. So there's lots of real benefits. But I think one of the problems is that there isn't within that until recently um a mention that you need to look after yourself and it, it was um i really struggled and like i was saying and one thing that helped me was to read the updated hippocratic oath which was only updated in 2017 to include a phrase saying something along the lines of i will attend to my own health well-being and, and abilities in order to provide care of the highest standard now, that was only added in 2017. That was like three years ago. Isn't that? I just think that's crazy. And I just think that reflects a lot. I think that answers your question in some part, that why was it only three years ago that was even added? And it was only because a, a great doctor called Dr. Sam Hazeldean in Australia lobbied for that. He runs Medworld, and I've done an interview for them. Um, they're based in Australia, but, you know, to the wonder of the World Wide Web, you can look We have up. listeners in Australia. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, great place you've got there. Um so, yeah, so I just think that's really important, actually. And for me, having sort of sworn the Hippocratic Oath when I joined up as a joined up as a doctor, um, and then seeing later on that, that there was this actually in black and white in the Hippocratic Oath, they had this power, this clause saying, I will look after myself. For me, that helped. It helped overcome some of those um barriers we were discussing. And I think there's something about um uh kind of people being so thoughtful about the others that they forget that they're a finite resource you know we even if we want to carry on giving it's actually very difficult for human beings to do that if they don't receive as well um so part of that is about thinking about this again gets back to your identity if you're able to say my identity is separate from my job then you can say yeah well, i've only got so much time on the planet just like everybody else i deserve to look after myself in and of myself but if you're so bound up with your identity then sometimes it's difficult to make that separation i think that can be difficult um and i think that just the general um stigma sometimes people still fall into that hero um kind of persona i know there's a lot of there's some discomfort in the first wave when people were clapping and so on and people felt awkward with that hero uh label which i, th I can understand that and it's probably quite healthy to be a bit to think oh i'm not sure if i'm comfortable with that because if you're in that role then it's very difficult to say give yourself permission to do anything except for mm -hmm. look after the other um and I think there's some things that are helping. I think the pandemic has helped a bit. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has been very difficult in so many ways. But one thing it's helped has been a bit more narrative and discussion about, you know, looking after, caring for the carer. 
um, in all different walks of life, whether it's healthcare workers, people caring for elders at home, people caring for others who are vulnerable during the pandemic. And I think one thing that's come up, you know, is the use of the word burnout has been used a lot more colloquially. And I think that's helpful because it's a word that people seem comfortable using to say I'm struggling. Uh, and I think that's good because it get, it allows them, to, it gives them permission to say I'm struggling, whereas maybe they wouldn't have, they might not have been comfortable to say I'm anxious, I'm depressed, you know, but they, somehow people are more comfortable to use the word burnout, which my view is it's it's a good thing, like I just said. Obviously, there's a definition of burnout and not everybody who uses the word burnout colloquially will meet the definition of burnout. But for the purposes of just people saying how they're feeling and starting that conversation and starting to seek help, starting to give themselves permission, I think it's great to have some change in culture and narrative that allows these topics to be discussed more freely. Um, and that's one reason why I founded The Working World Doctor, because I really wanted just to tell my story a bit and just try to start that conversation or be part of the conversation that had started. Because there's something there about you can't be what you can't see. There was nobody that I knew of who was doing what, um, what I'm doing when I was really struggling. So I couldn't see anybody just saying, oh, this is what happened. And, you know, I'm human and all those things. And it just so it felt very difficult, very difficult. Yeah, because it's not like there's no one out there who's, that, you know, there's hundreds of doctors out there and lawyers and pilots yeah. and accountants and teachers who yeah. who have burnt out. And I, I think that's a really interesting observation about the change in the phrase. You know, I think we used to call it, I guess, nervous breakdown or yeah, things like really, that. Yeah, which what is a kind of, pejorative term. Yes, it is. It's because you're nervous. It's because your nerves aren't right and you've had a breakdown. Whereas burnout is much more sort of, well, burnout will happen to anybody. You know, it's, it's based on the rocket, isn't it? The NASA rocket that was carrying on, but it completely burnt out of fuel so you couldn't do anything with it. And we now know that burnout is a very physiological phenomenon where you literally burn out your hypothalamic pituitary axis and you, you haven't got enough your cortisol going around you haven't got enough uh, get up and go it's literally gone and it's a physiological thing and it something I'm quite keen on educating people about is no matter how resilient you are if you are working in a very difficult circumstance in a difficult workplace where you are not allowed to rest or recover or you will end up burnt out we are all finite resources I think that's something that we don't reflect on enough and I think yeah. And within work, of course, we are replaceable because that's what that's what the workplace is. You know, people come into work and if they're off sick or they're not available, then someone else will cover or you cross cover or people, you know, whatever. It's not always ideal. There's, as we all know, when people are away from work, it can be challenging for those who remain. But nonetheless, in the notion that if you're not there, things will carry on around you. Whereas in your home life, your personal life, it's, it's much more difficult. You know, people don't want you to not be functioning or to be really burnt out or poorly or even worse you know you matter as a human being in and of yourself aside from your work role um yeah I, yeah it's I think it's a it is a really tricky one actually and I, um, I still think there's some way to go but I think you're right there's some there's some shifts such I think are positive along with all the challenges that we're having um and it's a shame isn't it that often people don't notice they're burnt out until they've got to that third step you know they've got the exhaustion you know doesn't isn't get better after holidays and doesn't get better at the weekend they've got that kind of internal emotional distance whatever they're feeling cynical about the patient or oh, i just don't want to hear what you've got to say all those things that you can't you feel really awkward about because that's not why you went into your caring profession 
And then finally, you end up with declining performance. And that's what everybody notices, including you. And that can feel really negative because then you get lots of negative feedback for you without you or even anybody else knowing all these antecedents that you'd struggled with. Mm. Uh, and it can put from when I, you know, it can take people who are who fit the definition of burnout, the ICD definition. It can take them quite a long time to actually recover from that. It's it's quite a tough one. Yeah, oh, it takes it takes months. I always remember, you yeah. know, patients come in and they sit sit in front of you and they go, oh, "Doctor, I'm feeling really stressed," and you're thinking crumbs. They say, "Can I have a couple of days off work?" You say, "Yeah, you know what? Why don't I give you a couple of weeks and let's see how you feel? Yeah. Come back after." They'll say, "Oh, I won't use it. I'll just go back in a couple of days." They come back after a couple of weeks, going, "Oh my, I think I might need another couple of weeks." And then, you know, before you know it, it's it's nine months or a year that they've they've yeah. taken off. It is a thing. It is can be really severe. It completely changes your life and everyone I know who's had a severe burnout well I guess like like you Katya have completely reset what they do in their life because they're like well I'm not going to go through that again that was that was awful yeah I think you're right it is the real like you said real burnout is like you said exactly that it's a real thing and it's impossible to ignore so having spent all this time you know ignore we talked just now about ignoring and suppressing and how can we carry you do all this carrying on carrying on ignoring ignoring and then you just go okay that is it I cannot yeah. And that is a massive wake up call uh, for people or for people like for me. And I'm not sure there are others like me. Um, and that's absolutely, you're absolutely right. There is no other way except to regroup and to rethink. Yeah. Uh, but I guess the, the third way would be not getting to that point to be actually, you know, it's much easier to treat when you're just at the beginning, you know, when you're mm. starting to go off the Yerkes-Dodson curve, when you're starting to tip off that point and you're getting the symptoms of distress, you're getting the symptoms of anxiety. And that brings us back to permission because we, we're healthcare professionals and other people listening. We know what to do, right? We know what to do to look after ourselves. That's when, when I do wellbeing training, I don't tend to give people you know, chapter and verse about what they need to do because they know I, I spend most time getting them to work out what they need to do for themselves and then how they're going to how are they going to put that into yeah. to place rather than what is it they need to do. We can give them a few points, of course. So yeah. how do we get people to give themselves permission? I think conversations like this are really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's about having the conversations and you know telling your story. And like I said, that's why I founded the Working Well Doctor. I think it's about when you are like when I I think you're right it's about telling especially healthcare providers I actually have a section in my training which is I'm telling you what you already know so exactly that and there's some evidence isn't there that when you're in your doctor role or your caring professional's role you are the giver and psychologically you're not gonna it won't land with you um even though as you say you know it so I think there is something there about allowing people to step out of their roles and be in a reflective space be in a space where they're allowed to think about themselves and their needs and I think these things land more with them I've had pretty good feedback from the training I've done and some of the consistent feedback is you know GPs and stuff saying I know that I told my patients that but I haven't really thought about doing it for myself until I came and listened to you and then exactly that you encourage people to take actions write things down have an accountability partner whatever it is that works for them just to try and embed these habits Um, I talk also about you know tiny steps um, as tiny steps or atomic habits various books and theories out there but ultimately it's about that taking that first step isn't it nudging yourself towards the change so for the I used to not run but I literally just put my trainers by the door um, and then after a few weeks of walking past my trainers one day I put them on and then a few days later I actually walked out the house and walked around the block and then you build up to running and I think giving those little strategies to help people embed the habits so they're not just knowing it intellectually but they're practicing it I think is is helpful 
Uh, and I think reflective practices help for people, whatever they do, whatever is your thing, journaling, creative pursuits, being with nature, whatever it is, it allows you to just have that more reflective space, I think is helpful to, to really think about yourself and start embed these things and give yourself permission to actually make changes for you. And doctors and other high stress professionals, we're all really cognitive, aren't we? We're all really thinky, thinky, intellectual, and it's all, that's just great. But you've got to actually embed some practices to actually get some benefits from these things mm-hmm. we're discussing, I think. And you need really, I really struggle to give myself permission to do the actions. Yeah. I think you also need to spend some time really thinking about what the impact will be if you don't, if you don't do it, if you don't give yourself permission. Yeah. Because, you know, making a mistake, um, we know that with burnout, you know, you get poor performance, you get lack of insight with stress, we don't behave very well. So you're going to, you may well end up in front of the GMC, you may affect your relationships, you're not going to be happy, you can see the health going. So even though you can't see what the difference it'll make next week, but actually you've put yourself a year or two into the future. And that's one of the reasons why I did the career change that I did, because I was just thinking, what's it going to be like in five years time if I'm still doing what I'm doing now? Because if you always do what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. That yeah. is the problem. And what is going to be the impact of that on, you know, actually get, get out of your own head. What's going to be the impact on my family oh. or on my patients? Because I might not be feeling very happy, but I think we're very good at bit, just putting up with ourselves feeling not very happy and stressed. But actually, how's it going to affect other people? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that I was quite rubbish at that. Uh, But I think you're right. If you can do that, then I think it it helps you take action sooner. Absolutely. But um, you've got to be honest when you do that as well. You know, you've got to say, what's it really going to be like in five years? Rather than go, oh, it'll be all right. I'll just like, it'll be better when. I did a lot of, it'll be better when. It'll be better when I've, I don't know, got this hurdle, got this exam, got this job. That kind of thinking it's funny, isn't it? Because deferring um, that deferment mentality is linked to success. And we all know that, you know, you, you revise now because you'll get the exam and that is rewarded again, isn't it, in our professional lives. But then you've got to watch out that that doesn't become a trap where you're constantly saying it'll be better when. That prevents you doing what you just said, which is thinking, OK, really what will happen in a few years rather than this wishful thinking about it'll get better. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. yeah, and that really reminds me of a little little diagram. I just got it right in front of me it's in, in this book about happiness from um, oh. Tal, Tal Ben Shahar, and basically he's talking oh, about nice. the fact that you know a lot of us, um, you know, defer stuff because we know that there's going to be future benefit. Like if I just work all these shifts, I can spend, I can save up this money. It will be better when I wait to my holiday and you'll leave. So we're not experiencing happiness now because we're trying to store it up for the future, which often never comes. Mm. Or we flip to the other side where we're going, right, I really need that chocolate now because that will make me feel better now. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that that actually not going to not going to make us feel better in the future. Um, and so we end up just eating eating that McDonald's burger or junk food and all that sort of stuff. Whereas actually what we're aiming at is things that we know that are actually going to make us feel good and happy now, but also are going to be good for us. Yeah. That's so that's where you're looking at, yeah, the mindfulness and the running and the bath. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the relaxing. I think that that's something that, I have realized in myself, and this is, this is another whole podcast episode, those three, you know, your drive zone, your threat zone and your soothe zone that yeah. medics, 
other professionals in high stress jobs spend most of their time either in their threat zone with that yeah. adrenaline going on or their drive zone. We're getting that dopamine hit and achieving. Yeah. We spend very little time in our parasympathetic rest and digest, yeah. which is really important for us. And I have had to learn how to rest. Yeah, because, there's an interesting book on that, isn't there? I've just started reading about oh, resting. And you did a really, um, oh, so my bookshelf. Oh, uh, I can't remember his name. It's a blue book. Oh, yes, I have that. Yes, I can't remember what his name is. You're right. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. And yeah, I listened to your really cool thing you did on the PHP about rest as well. But yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, it's really massively important, isn't it? And if you want any arguments, it's the argument that it's not just good for you, but it will help your cognitive performance back to performance again. You know, if you rest, if you allow your brain to switch off, if you allow yourself to look at nature or even just a pot plant, that will help. Mm. Um, I talk about micro breaks in my training, you know, people say, I never have time. Well, you always have time for that one or two minutes in yeah. the middle. And they even did a really interesting study with surgeons where they had parallel studies, surgeons doing a surgery straight through and then other surgeons in parallel doing the same operation. But they were they stopped and took a break mid-surgery. They stay scrubbed in. They didn't touch anything. They just actually stood by the side of the patient who was made safe, took a short break and then continued. And the really interesting thing was the surgery time was no longer. So the break the surgeons took paid for itself because their performance post-break was better than that of the surgeons who worked all the way through. And you just think, you know, that kind of thing really makes you think about it. And what else? Yeah, there's some studies about time since last break on nurses doing telemedicine and their decision-making gets sort of a little bit more tricky as they get further away from their last break. So there's all these, sort of, again, back to your work and your performance and your safety critical job and your brain and your decision-making is your resource mm-hmm. uh, and you've got to look after it. So taking a break a short time within your work is important, but you're right for the bigger piece for you as a human, you do need that time outside of work. Um, and, it's, and it gives you time to connect as well, connect with people around you, your loved ones mm. and so on. Yeah. There's so many good reasons to do it, but for, for people that are used to just serving others and giving their whole self, it's good for you because it will make you better at serving others. So there exactly. you go. If, if you need one reason to do it, even if it's not just to feel better, you're better yourself. Yeah. So, Katya, we're, we're out of time. Mm. If you had three top tips that you'd like people to go away way and, and do following this episode, what would they be? Gosh, that's a good one. Um, I think um, three top tips. I think, I think there's something I'd like people just to, yeah, just to give themselves permission. I guess that's one. But permission just to do that first step. The first step is just to pause. Permission to pause and think what do I need right now? Um, And if you do that, then you're taking a step and you're starting to practice. And then if you then deliver for yourself that thing, that glass of water or whatever it is, then you're teaching yourself, you're setting up a new neural pathway, aren't you? You're rewarding yourself for the behavior. And hopefully then you you will start to embed that practice. So yeah, I think that's just off the cuff, but I think that would be what I would say. What do I need right now? And permission to do it for my own good, for my family's good, and for good of my customers, my clients, my patients, and, you know, everyone around me. Yeah. Brilliant. Katya, thank you so much. If people want to contact you, how can they find you? Yeah, so you can find me at my website, workingwelldoctor.com, or on Instagram, at workingwell, no, at working underscore well underscore doctor. Um, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Um, under Katya Miles working well and then if you want to email me it's theworkingwellexperience at gmail.com 
Uh, and we've not talked loads about working from home because we're sort of mm. running short of time, but that's another passion of mine. So I've got uh, you know, permission to make sure you look after yourself when you work from home. Just drop me an email. I've got, or go to my website. I've got a freebie there if people are interested. That's great, actually. We'll get you back on the podcast to talk about that because I think that's a, that's something that a lot of us are facing at the moment and struggling oh, with. Yeah. <laughs> Another whole episode. Absolutely. Great. Oh, well, thank you so much and we'll speak soon. That's great. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye then. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.